Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of Countless Corpses Podcast, part of the Omen Comics Podcast Network and home of the Stab Signal. Metal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your host, Macabre Michael Nunley, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, David Nemesis Howard. Uh, we're just two longtime horror fans and writers talking about horror in its various forms. We are changing things up just a bit around here. Uh, we have decided to shorten our episodes a bit, starting with this one. For the most part, it's still the same show, but just a more condensed and easily digestible version. Um, on today's episode, we'll be covering our final Halloween movie, Halloween H2O, 20 years later from 19. 98. I'll tell you though, my dad was more into Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street, and well, I, I didn't have much say on what he rented. <laughs> Consequently, um, H2O was the very first Halloween movie I had seen, and I'll tell you, it scared me. Uh, but it was not until I saw 2007's Halloween by Rob Zombie that I really fell in love with the Michael Myers character and dove into the original movies. Uh, but it was H2O that put me on the hook. Uh, but how was it for you, Nam? When did you first see Halloween H2O? And and did you have any opening thoughts? Well, um, as you know, I'm really into the uh, demons and the paranormal. So that was my main horror. So I came to Friday the 13th and Halloween uh, late in life. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, the last 10 year or so years is when I first started watching these movies. And my first viewing of Halloween H2O was for this show. And I have to say, I enjoyed it. Uh, it's a different kind of Halloween film, but I thought that it felt much more like the first two Halloween movies, you know, and I appreciated what they did here. I'm looking forward to getting to this film, and I'm grateful that Countless Corpses podcast has broadened my horror horizons, as it were. You know, uh, I love it that I'm becoming a more well-rounded horror fan. Uh, I have to say that... Um, I missed this in the past as I concentrated, like I said, to my detriment on my first love, which is the demonic and the dark powers, you know, because I'm that kind of person. So with the hearty Vaya con Diablos, uh, I send it over to you, Macabre Mike. Let's get this thing started because you've, you've caused me to have a little bit of a love affair with Michael Myers here. So let's do it. Hell yeah. That's what I'm talking about. You know, as far as I see it, we only claim to be longtime horror fans. We do not claim to have watched all the same movies. In fact, we're going to be getting into some of that demonic and dark power stuff uh, later this month when we dive into 13 Ghosts. Uh, but let's get into H2O. 1998's Halloween H2O 20 years later was directed by Steve Miner and starred Jamie Lee Curtis, LL Cool J, uh, Adam Arkin, Michelle Williams, uh, Janet Lee, and uh, Josh Hartnett in his debut film. H2O is the seventh film in the Halloween franchise and the first one in the franchise to start an alternate timeline, ignoring the, the Jamie Lloyd story arc of Halloween 4 through 6. Um, H2O is a direct sequel to 1981's Halloween 2. Uh, H2O and Resurrection was the second timeline, and the next one after Resurrection was Rob Zombie's reboot, which is the third timeline that rejected 1, 2, and 4 through 6, and the H40 films that only counted the first film and did a fourth timeline. While nowhere near as many versions as Halloween 6, the seventh film did have an alternate version that had, had only been available one time that I know of, and it was on TV. 
In February of 2003, the FX network premiered an alternate version of the film, adding and extending footage uh, not seen in the original release. It, it has yet to be released on any digital platform or physically, uh, but the deleted scenes can be found on YouTube. Uh, so what do you say we get into the writing process for Halloween H2O, Nim? Sure, but I, I gotta say, I'm glad I have a minor in math from college because I needed it to keep up with all those various timelines. I mean, my head <laughs> is spinning right now. Uh, but yeah, in my best orc voice from Board of the Rings, fire up the stab signal because script butchering is back on the menu, boys. Let's have it. All right. Yeah, uh, here we go. Buckle up, folks. The original idea for the seventh Halloween film was the brainchild of Daniel Ferentz. And you'll recognize that name from some of our other podcasts. Go back and watch them right now. The second of Ferentz's treatment for this movie was written during pre-production of Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, and was repackaged and submitted as a new treatment entitled Michael Myers, Lord of the Dead. The plan was to continue the story from where it left off in Curse, Tommy Doyle was supposed to discover that the entire town of Haddonfield was involved in a conspiracy to control Michael Myers. Cue the Mulder and Scully cameo. We talked about this last episode. We all agreed that that would have been pretty friggin' awesome, but it didn't yeah. happen. Anyway, uh, I have to say, I still want this to happen so bad. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about it. Can you imagine Scully seeing Michael tank some shots and saying, it's just not possible, Mulder. It defies <laughs> rational explanation. I mean, and Mulder giving her that look, you know, I could see it in my head. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Ferris was in love with this idea. It compared the story to uh, such films as The Wicker Man, The Hitcher, Rosemary's Baby, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, and Dennis Etchison's rejected screenplay for Halloween for uh, The Return of Michael Myers. Ferens noted that in an earlier draft of the film, there was a scripted scene where a student in Lori's class named Sarah does a book report on a book called The Halloween Murders. And I have to say, there's always those little tiebacks to Scream that we find in these. And that thing, The Halloween Murders, reminds me of uh, Courtney Cox's character, that book that she wrote. I don't even remember what it's mm. called. But this report was an effort on her part and Ferens to tie all the movies together. God bless you. You know, so talk about a Herculean effort and good on him for giving it a go. Fans really did deserve it, but uh, I don't know if anybody could have done it. Evidently, uh, this scene was filmed and it went into great detail about varying aspects of the previous movies. Uh, first of all, Sarah mentions that Jamie Lloyd losing her parents in a car accident. And this is used to explain the absence of Laurie Strode in those sequels. Uh, her report also chronicles Jamie being hunted and eventually killed by her uncle. And we all know how you felt about that kill in the previous movie. So you love that kill. So, you know, maybe we ought to throw a stab signal up for that, for how much you love that kill. Oh, hell yeah. And uh, so upon hearing this oral presentation in the classroom, the grief sticker, Carrie Tate, who we all know is Laurie Strode, retreats to the restroom and vomits. 
you know, and we all need some good vomit in our movies. <laughs> and the whole idea was dropped, though, when the production team decided to shelve the H4 through 6. You know, we decided to get rid of that whole timeline and just wipe it out completely. And they wanted to concentrate more on the Laurie Strode aspect of the story. Okay, so we're doing this again. We're, we're killing timelines. So, uh, stab signal for that whole storyline. It is dead. May it rest in peace. Like I said, folks, butchering of scripts is back on the menu. So, uh, with the writing on the wall, Ferris decided not to continue with the series, saying... Uh, honestly, he couldn't bear to watch another one of his scripts turned into a debacle, especially another Halloween. Say That's writing. Uh, over to you, Mike. Man, you know, we've talked about the brutalizing of the script for Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, and the ridiculous nature of the production, and having too many roosters in the hen house. Uh, that was a nightmare situation, so I'm not surprised at all that he had no interest in doing that again. In fact, after Halloween 6, I can't believe anyone would want to work on the franchise. <laughs> I, I know that at least I would want to. I, I guess that's why I write comics and record podcasts instead of making movies. <laughs> <laughs> you can only take so much pain, I swear. You can only take so much right? pain. <laughs> one, one of the things Kevin Williams had to do before they decided to cut out 4 through 6 was explain why Lori was still alive after her death in the car accident. He came up with Lori faking her death and getting into the witness protection program with her son. Under the alias Carrie Tate. <laughs> Tate, by the way, is a very obvious reference uh, to actress Sharon Tate, who was murdered by Susan Atkins in 1969. And that is not the only reference to that night of carnage. Uh, but I will talk a bit more about that later. Uh, but back to the whole thing about Lori faking her death and going into the witness protection program with her son. Even though there was no longer a direct reason in the film for Lori to have gone on into hiding under a fake name, this element of the plot still remains in the finished film. But it is elaborated on in the comics, which, which we'll get into in a bit. Uh, but I understand that there was another idea for the script, wasn't there? Absolutely, there sure was. So uh, after Ferenc decided to pop smoke, by the way, evil pie piece for anyone who knows what that is a reference to. So throw that up there if you have it. But uh, it is a military thing. So I will just leave it at that. But I digress again. After Ferenc bailed, a new treatment for H7, Two Faces of Evil, was written by Robert Zappia. By the way, don't you think they should have made a Batman comic titled that? How awesome would that have been? I, 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 will get, I will get to that in just a second. But for the record, to pop smoke is a military term that means to retreat or to move without the enemy seeing you. Absolutely, absolutely. And you actually pop smoke. So evil peace for you, man. Evil peace. <laughs> evil nice. trivia pie peace. Nice. Yeah. You died right. well tonight, my friend. <laughs> All right. Uh, but but as to the title of the film, I, I think I actually have a good example of that. Uh, do you remember The Dark Knight Returns? Well, mm -hmm. in that story, Two-Face gets his face fixed so that the, the monster side is all gone. And Harvey's mind is so broken that he sees the human face side as the evil side. So when they made him look like Harvey Dent again, he saw a complete monster now. Anyway, I think Two Faces of Evil would have been a great title for that storyline. How about that? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I love that idea. That would have been perfect. So, oh, man. 
we could start talking about Batman, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. So let's get back to the script and to truly horrific things. You know, Two-Face is bad, but he doesn't compare to what's going on with the script. So uh, Two-Faces of Evil, that's what we're talking about. The script, not the, the great idea you have for a comic book, was intended to be a direct-to-video film. Oh, God. I got to pause for a moment. Direct-to-video. That's never a good sign. Uh, that would have seen <laughs> Michael Myers stalking a Finstead female boarding school. Um, I don't think I have the heart to continue anymore, Mike. Uh, the things I do for Countless Corpses podcast. I can't believe I'm about to talk about this. Uh, the plot was also supposed to feature a copycat killer, which caused fans to compare it to Silence of the Lambs. It probably also featured pillow fights, shower scenes, and a game of Truth or Dare, and it inspired the Madonna faux documentary Truth or Dare. I, I, I absolutely know that had to have been true. But in a strange twist of fate, Michael Myers was afraid to appear in that film, you know, because it's just too damn scary to be in there. So anyway, back to the fail pitches for the film that included a title change, another one. What are we? This is three or four title changes we're up to now. The new title was now going to be Halloween Blood Ties. Eventually, all of these ideas were scrapped when it was revealed that Haddonfield was under the control of Michael J. Fox's Alex P. Keaton, hence the Family Ties callback. So back to you, Mike. I'm starting to lapse into Stark Overload. I need to be about it. <laughs> I love the family ties reference there, man. Snark on. <laughs> Snark on. That's my new motto. Snark on. <laughs> but but as far as the script ideas go, uh, it was not an all women's boarding school, but Hillcrest Academy certainly was a fenced in school, albeit a co ed private one rather than a boarding school. Uh, so it seems at least some of Robert Zappia's original ideas made it into the film. My understanding is that this is about the time that Jamie Lee Curtis came into the picture and 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 uh, the versions of H2O that we ended up with uh, was actually Jamie Lee Curtis's idea. Uh, she said that I wanted to explore Lori's trauma and show what the event she went through on Halloween night in 1978 did to her, end quote. Uh, but she thought that, quote, was they were afraid it was just too dark. I think that people were afraid to go where I wanted to go. I think that they didn't know if that kind of dysfunction was going to be acceptable for the lead character in the movie, end quote. Jamie Lee Curtis considers the film a thank you note to her fans. She said, uh, without that early career, I don't think I would have uh, been an actor. In retrospect, she has said since that the whole thing was her idea and she should have simply demanded the producer position. She said, quote, I would have been able to see my vision through if I had been a producer, but I was a mom. I had two kids, uh, so I was just happy to make a movie. So because there was there were differences in the visions of the film, the movie has no essential vision to it. <laughs> Gee, where have we heard about conflicting ideas and making Halloween movies before, Nem? <laughs> is it isn't that where you're supposed to be pragmatic and be like totally metal into horror and just say F them kids? Uh oh. Maybe did I just say that? Maybe we should edit that out. Anyway, uh yeah. That is just, it's really hard to hear. That's really hard to hear. I mean, I love it when you go there and now you're telling me we could have gone further down the rabbit hole with Lori. I mean, just damn, damn. I mean, I just don't understand this reluctance, especially since we had Silence of the Lambs in 1991, Hannibal a few years after HGO, and then Red Dragon the following year after this movie. I mean, those movies are all about the dark recesses of the mind and the public ate them 
up. Ate them up. Uh-huh. I, I have to agree with that 100%, especially when it comes to horror movies. I, I don't think that there is a place that is too dark to go in a horror movie. Uh, yep. What's more is that part of a horror movie's job, at least in my opinion, is to make the viewer uncomfortable. <laughs> and starting out with Laurie uh, being a broken mess and then fighting through that to fight Michael sounds awesome. If only Curtis had insisted on the producer job. Absolutely. I think it would have been great. And personally, I think she would have been great at it. Uh, I think she's a very talented, talented person. Uh, but at least they decided to do some version of Jamie's idea. You know, when she expressed interest in returning to the series, Kevin Williamson, was, uh, who was coming off his blockbuster success with Scream in 1996, was asked by Dimension Films to pin a treatment uh, that added Lori Strobe. Williamson was not credited in the end as per WGA rules. Oh, Lord. Which state that additional writers on sequels have to strike or have to write at least 33% of the script to receive an on-screen credit. I had a little Freudian slip there. I said strike, you know, because of the whole DJ, WGA thing right now, you know. But uh, when you're when talking the about Hollywood gills, uh, having having a little Freudian slip there with the with the strike is perfectly understandable. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they were they're putting it into my mind because I've got to, you know, Get that out there, you know, so I could get in the guild, too. There, I will, Yes, go, go, go. Anyway, uh, when the WGA deemed that Williamson did not deserve writing credit on the screenplay, Dimension Films, hoping to market the film as from the creator of Scream, offered Zappia more money to share the right credit, but Zappia declined. Um, wow. Although not directly credited, he provided rewrites in character dialogue, most of which you see during the team moments. Which makes me ask, what does that mean when you're good at writing teenagers, Mike? What, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't know. Maybe he was a Toys R Us kid named, named Peter Pan. <laughs> um, okay, uh, fair, fair. You know, the, jur the jury is really still out on that. But seriously, I think it means just not growing up on some level or maybe just not losing your youthful spirit. I I'm not exactly sure. Uh, there are filmmakers who, despite being adults, still understand the teenage mindset of angst and hormones and developing self-perception and worldview. I, I suppose the first example <laughs> I think of is the great John Hughes, who was in many ways the voice of the 80s teenage generation uh, with his films. Uh, I think that with Scream, Williamson proved that he captured the spirit of the 90s teen. Okay, I'll give it to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's very good at what he does. And... Uh... I have to say Scream was a very well-written movie in that regard. So in many regards, actually, if I'm being fair, I think Scream is a very good movie. So, mm -hmm. um, all right, let's give it up to him. Thumbs up. So, but now that we've gotten over that and my, you know, completely tangent question, what do you think about the whole WGA and their 33% rule? What do you think about that aspect? Um, well, I, I'm I'm not sure, but I think the WGA's 33% rule is based on copyright law. As far as I know, uh, a book like like the Bible, for instance, has to be changed by something around 33% to be considered significant enough to get a new copyright on the version someone wants to put out. Well, while I disagree with the idea that William. Uh, did as much as he did with the treatments and the script and didn't get any kind of writing credit for it. If you ask me, 
<laughs> Zapier has some pettiness going on there. I don't know how else to say that. It, yep. It's not like we don't all know that William significantly added to the script Zapier wrote. So he's not fooling anyone, <laughs> not taking any extra money to share on the script just to make just it just makes him look like an ass if you ask me. Uh, but what do you think about that, Dan? Uh, yeah, let me think about that for about half a second. Yeah, I vote ass as well. In fact, Zapia can now share the moniker of Mr. Ass with badass Billy Gunn of the New Age Outlaws fame. Evil trivia pie piece to you, Mike, when you figure out that pro wrestling reference. Go for it. <laughs> I'm okay with that official CCP nickname as long as I don't have to see the Zapia moon whilst listening to Ass Man. <laughs> oh, God. I just had a, a flashback that I'm the ass man, Jerry, the ass man. So. <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and take my evil trivia pie piece there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, considering that Williams was involved with the teen sequences, I have to assume that with, with him being an executive producer as well as a writer, that the screen tube references were all him um, with, with, in, in, in HQ, they were just all over the place. When when the guidance counselor, Will Brennan, checks on Molly and Sarah, they are watching Scream 2, in particular the scene uh, uh, where Ghostface calls C.C. Cooper. Uh, well, this is this clearly references the works Williams is most famous for. It might also be a subtle nod to Randy and the kids watching the original Halloween in the first Scream movie. Um it, it might also be a reference to Chris Durant, who plays Michael Myers in H2O. He, he actually had an uncredited role as a stunt double at for Ghostface in Scream 2. Wow. On the other hand, <laughs> that could totally be a coincidence. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but there was one other double play reference that I think Williams had in, had in mind. Um, with Lori or Carrie says to John and Molly, go down the street to the Beckers. Uh, this was a play on her words in the 78 film to Tommy and Lindsay, uh, go down the street to the McKenzie's. Uh, but the name changes to Beckers, which clearly references Casey Becker from the 1996 screen film. So with that rabbit hole out of the way, what do you say we get back to writing? Huh? Oh, what? You're talking to me? Okay, sorry. I ran over the Beckers for a couple blood real quick and uh, missed what you're saying. So, uh, yeah, um, writing. Let's do that. Uh, sorry, Casey. You keep your blood to yourself. I'll be over there later. So, all right. Uh, no more blood for the moment. And back to some screenwriting. Well, there'll be dead screens, but screenwriting our scripts, but... I, I digress. So, yeah, we're talking about Hollywood and writers. So there's plenty of metaphorical blood uh, on tap. So the new screenplay. Uh, yeah, they're all new screenplays at this point. <laughs> was based on a story by Kevin Williamson with a working title of Halloween 7, The Revenge of Laurie Strode. I don't know why that made me laugh, but there it is. A uh, little known fact, a new spinoff series was also pitched called Writers Unite. The Rampage of Daniel Ferens. <laughs> I, I, I want to watch that. Anyway, Williamson was hired to write his script, and it was intended to be a sequel to the previous films. Good luck with that. Intending to retcon Laurie Strode's death in Halloween 4. Williamson came up with the idea that Laurie had faked her own death as he pinned the outline for Halloween H2O. However... However, the first few drafts that Williamson worked on were pinned with Jamie Lee Curtis's input and had radically different endings than what we eventually got. Williamson fell back on one of his 
trademark writing tropes and created a Williamson opener similar in style to what he did on screen. In the scene, he introduced a new character, Sam Loomis's daughter, Rachel Loomis, in place of Nancy Stevens' character, Marion Whittington. It was intended that she have the computer files on Laurie Strode slash Carrie Tate, and Rachel would come home and discover her computer on and would swiftly be dispatched by the shape. You know, and we can all theorize on what kind of dispatching that would have been. It probably would have been something good, but, you know, we we can we can only dream and hope. So, anyway, in the climax of this treatment, there is a massive helicopter and bus chase sequence culminating and the down helicopter spinning out of control and decapitating the shape with its out-of-control rotor, a la Mission Impossible 1986. In fact... Tom Cruise comes roaring out of the helicopter and says red light, green light as it happens. Uh, but this version was not officially used. Uh, so his version was not officially used, but he did several rewrites on set based on his treatment for the movie that became the final filmed version. So an homage to the Crypt Keeper and the tales from the script movies. I got to say, that's entertainment, kitties. Back to you, Mike. Nice. <laughs> I love me some Crypt Keeper. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I understand that after they cut the scene with the student connecting four through six uh, with H2O's continuity via the Halloween murders discussion, and before they decided to ditch it all together, they originally had another idea to bridge the films. Uh, the newspaper clippings on Marion Whittington's walls originally included headlines like Mysterious Cult Kept Murders Hushed Up in Haddonfield mm. and Jamie Lloyd Missing, uh, with the dates 1995 and 1989. Uh, but in one headline that survived in the finished film was Laurie Strode Killed in Car Accident. And of course, the bloody pair of scissors, which of course is reminiscent of the scissors used by Jamie Lloyd at the end of Halloween 4. And given the car accident headline, that is even heavily likely. Uh, but as Michael Myers uses scissors to kill Rachel Carruthers, it is possible that, that, that it's just a reference to Halloween 5. Either way, there are still two very probable references to Halloween 4 still in the movie. So, so maybe they didn't cut out 4 through 6 altogether. Hey, can uh, I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. Wouldn't it have been cool to see Daniel Harris in a cameo at, as a student at the school? <laughs> that would have been pretty badass, actually. <laughs> the, in fact, it would have been really cool if she'd have maybe taken Molly's place in that Frankenstein discussion. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry for the, you know, my mind works in mysterious ways, but that just occurred to me. Back to you, Mike. Keep going. So <laughs> no, no, no problem. No problem at all. Um, I'm actually starting to see what Curtis was talking about when she said there was no essential vision for the story. Uh, but let's talk about the directing position for a minute. Jamie Lee Curtis had wanted to reunite both the cast and crew from the original 78 film. And for that reason, John Carpenter was originally in negotiations to direct the film, but he didn't end up doing it. Now, there is a rumor that says Carpenter wanted nothing to do with the film, and that's why he didn't direct. But that isn't true. Um, he agreed to direct the movie, uh, but a 20-year-old grudge with Mustafa Akkad over revenue that Carpenter had never received from the first Halloween movie got in the way. You see, Carpenter figured that he would get his compensation via a paycheck from H2O, so he asked for $10 million to direct the film and 
a three-picture <laughs> deal with Dimension Films. You got to put the little <laughs> pinky up when you say that. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I don't know about you, Deb, but, but that definitely sounds like like the demands of an angry and bitter person, and not necessarily the demands of a businessman. Uh, that is akin to Bjorn only letting enemies go that can bend over and kiss their own ass. And it would seem that Akkad and the Weinstein bro Weinstein brothers uh, laughed at the demand, and so that's why Carpenter didn't direct. <laughs> But what do you think about that demand, Nim? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that that was John Carpenter's way of telling them to kiss his ass. So uh, John definitely has his ego. And uh, I think at this point in his career, certainly needed them less than they needed him. And personally, I don't think he was all that interested in that job. And so gave them an offer that he figured they refused. And if they didn't, he effectively robbed the hell out of them. So I honestly, I can't say I blame him personally, you know, but I will say that after John Carpenter laid his member on the table, uh, metaphorically, because <laughs> I don't have any evidence that he did that for real, but metaphorically laid his member on the table, scared away a cod and the Weinsteins, Steve Miner, uh, one of the founding fathers of the slasher genre was hired on as director. Um, that's an interesting choice since minor slasher bona fides came via Friday the 13th. Additionally, if you break down the kills in Halloween H2O, they have a definite, how do I say it? Friday the 13th vibe, a style to them. Uh, Michael has a Jason-like presence in many of the shots and his movements, his kill style is, uh, I'm going to say it's very Jason as well. Um, so with that, Let's give that stab signal, Mike, for the merging of Jason and Michael in this movie. That's kind of an unholy thing to say, and I love it. Hell yeah. So with that, with things that can only happen on a horror movie set for 2000, Alex, may he rest <laughs> Adam Hahn Bird's favorite moment during filming was when Jamie Lee, Lee Curtis came up to him one day and said, Steve and I were brainstorming for over three hours last night about how best to kill you. <laughs> okay. Uh, we came up with this idea to stick your hand down a garbage disposal. I wanted to just chop it right off and give you this nasty mangled stump. But Steve thought it would be more suspenseful not to, he said. He said, thanks, Jamie. So glad to hear you've really got my back. Remind me to send Steve a nice bottle of scotch or something. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Let's just digest that. And imagine I'm about to say in my best Crypt Keeper voice again, now that's it. So, you know, I need to get better at that. I'm going to practice that, folks. But that is right up the Crypt Keeper style. I mean, you are thanking someone on finding a better way to kill you. So, uh, Mike, I'm hoping that the Crypt Keeper will find me and possess me and move through me for future episodes. Uh, and eventually, we're going to have to get some tales from the Crypt on, on Countless Corpses podcast. But until we do, over to you while I conduct this home exorcism, or actually, you know, reverse exorcism to try and get the Crypt Keeper to move through me for future episodes. So back to you, Mike. Take it away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, if, if I can manage to get the series without it costing me an arm and a leg, I could see us doing a few episodes like like, you know, an episode on each season or something. But we'll have to talk about that for sure. But but there are a few more things about the writing uh, that I want to cover before we move on. I, I suppose the biggest thing to talk about is the ending. 
Um, it seems like mm -hmm. everyone was being pulled by someone else's string on this one. Uh, you talked about the Mission Impossible ending with Michael dying via <laughs> helicopter blade. Uh, but but there was another ending in earlier drafts where Laurie stabbed him through the heart with a javelin while he was pinned between two pieces of retractable gym floor. Uh, but there were major issues with whether or not Michael should or even could die. Uh, Mustafa Khad not only wanted the shape to live on, of course, so he can produce more Halloween films, but it was in his contract that Michael could not die. And, and of course, Bob Weinstein at Dimension Films wanted the shape to die. So Bob Weinstein instructed screenwriter Robert Zappia to write two endings and send the ending uh, with the ship surviving to a cod while they would actually shoot the ending where the shape died. Zappia refused, much to Weinstein's annoyance. And can we just give a moment to respect Robert Zappia for pissing off Bob Weinstein? Giving him that moment. And honestly... Once again, all I can say is damn, because members are just being slapped on tables all over this film, man. <laughs> People are just whipping them out and being like, take that. Only in the Halloween. So congrats to you, Zapia. We salute you. Very nice. So, uh, yeah, unbelievable. Executive producer uh, Mustafa Akkad said that the killer in H2O was not actually Michael Myers, but in fact, a copycat killer. Here we go. Further, he said that this twist would be explained in the next Halloween movie. Because, of course, we're never going to explain anything in the movie that we're actually watching, you know, because that would make too much sense. So, in 2002's Halloween Resurrection, Michael swapped clothes with one of the paramedics in keeping with his more tactical mind in H2O. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit. However, that also means that Lori killed an innocent man. Unknowingly, of course, but to say in my best Die Hard style... Welcome to the party, pal. So, yeah, she's yeah. killing people. I mean, Curtis was firm on needing Lori to believe she had killed Michael. And, and that makes sense mm -hmm. to me because otherwise she's just a stone-cold killer. So, um, and she was, I think she was absolutely right to insist on that. So, Jamie Lee Curtis knew that Lori would be killing an innocent man at the end of the film thinking it was Michael. But Lori Strode didn't. This was part of her deal for her to return. She was adamant that there could be no hint of it in the film and that audiences would believe that this was the end. Curtis later stated, if this is in fact how we are going to conclude the movie without the audience knowing, then I have to come back for one more movie for a very short moment to conclude Lori's story. That's awesome. I love that. And that is indeed what happened when she returned for Halloween Resurrection 2002, having snapped after learning that she killed an innocent man. According to Zappia, Kevin Williamson concocted the film's ending where the shape is killed, as well as the twist shown in Halloween Resurrection from 2002, where it is revealed that the shape had switched clothes with a paramedic. This solution managed to appease both parties. According to screenwriter Matt Greenberg, it was Bob Weinstein who suggested that Laurie Strode decapitate the shape with an axe. And I have to say that I was sad to see Laurie go out that way in Resurrection, but that it felt organic to the story as written. And I thought it, it was good all around because it made sense. What do you think? I, well, I, just a couple of things uh, real quick, though. Um, <laughs> Bob Weinstein actually came up with a good idea. <laughs> yeah. We should take a moment and, and think about that for a second. Bob Weinstein came up with a good idea. Definitely let's give him a stab signal because <laughs> he's never going to get another one. So, <laughs> All right. All right. Here we go.
<laughs> yeah, decapitating the shape with an axe was definitely a good idea. I, I, I gotta say, though, about the, the thing in Resurrection, that scene was really kind of took this really weird turn when Lori kissed him before she fell. Was that yeah. not really strange or, or what? Y yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty weird. That's that's pretty strange. Bob Weinstein probably came up with that as well. So maybe we should retract the stab signal. So <laughs> is there an anti-stab signal? <laughs> yeah, we need an anti-stab signal. <laughs> we didn't mean it, folks. Sorry. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I'm not the only one that didn't really like resurrection. In fact, me and apparently about 75% of fans pretend like there was no Halloween resurrection. <laughs> H2O ended just the way it should have. Resurrection takes away from all of that. As it stands, the only movie we have where Michael actually dies is Halloween ends, and that is just wrong. Removing Resurrection from the equation is much easier. <laughs> nice. But nice. if I okay. could, yeah, yeah. But but if I could switch gears here for a minute, we, we all know that I love to count the corpses and and talking about the kills. But another thing I love talking about is the masks. If you can't tell, I like masks. <laughs> <laughs> so let me dive into the mask of Halloween H two O. There are four masks used in this film. The first mm. mask was the John Carl Butchler mask from Halloween Six, based on the mask for the poster of Halloween Four. Uh, but the producers were not satisfied, so they called in the great Greg Nicotero from K&B Effects and had him make the second mask, and filming resumed using it. Uh, the K&B mask got some criticism from test audiences as it looked silly, bloated, and nothing like the original. Plus, the eye holes were just too wide, and, and it had a weird hairline that exposed most of his forehead. I mean, Jesus, you could drive a five-lane freeway across that thing. Also, it seemed like it also seemed to be like a blue-white kind of color, which, which was a little off. Uh, the K&B mask was laser, later replaced with a third mask, the Stan Winston mask. And Stan Winston is a good effects guy. He's been in a lot of movies. Uh, though the original footage is still retained in many of the long shots. The Stan Winston mask is the one seen for a majority of the films. Uh, though praised for, for looking more similar to the original, it was still mostly panned since Michael's eyes are plainly visible and for the hair appearing kind of frizzy-like. Uh, the final mask used in the film was the supposed CGI mask, which can be seen at 58 minutes and 27 seconds. Uh, Chris Durand revealed it's not a CGI mask. Uh, I think it was the original mask that they were trying to dirty up, uh, make a little bit, make more like the Stan Winston mask we ended up with. And they did a little bit of alteration in CGI to it. And that's why everybody calls it the CGI mask. It's not really CGI. It's kind of CG enhanced, but they didn't really do it well. And, and that was the problem. It was kind of a quick shot and it was kind of a quick cover. Uh, it was a little bit sloppy. Uh, but now that we have all of that out of the way, I think it's important to note a few things about Halloween H2O score. And that is my man Nim's department. So take it from here, my friend. I will get to the score in just a moment, but I have to be say that I'm left wondering what happened to all the masks from the other films? Did they get scared of what happened to the scripts and all run away? And so that's why they have to keep making new masks or what is going on? You know, somewhere there's Halloween masks in therapy somewhere way up in like Antarctica or something, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's really strange. I can I can answer that a little bit. Um, uh, a couple of the masks were just straight up taken by the people who who acted in the movie. <laughs> wow! Like, All right. Like uh, the the mask from uh, what what was his name? The uh, the Native American guy that played Michael in Halloween Four. 
I cannot remember his name. Uh, Don, Don, Don. Yes. Shanks, Don Shanks. I, yep, Don Shanks. Yep, yep. yeah. That he he actually straight up said uh, when when the filming is over, they're like, "We want the mask back," and he said, "Nope, game ball, I'm taking." It. <laughs> he was so big, they just let him take. It. <laughs> he just jacked it and walked off. It was like, <laughs> "Good luck, nice." So yeah, back to the score. So um, this score is kind of a strange Frankenstein monster of horror other horror movie scores. Uh, it is really kind of weird. Uh, the majority of John Ottman's original score was rejected late in post-production by Bob Weinstein. Yet another reason to take away that stab signal. Uh, these dudes are never not interfering. And uh, they replaced uh, John Ottman's score with Marco Beltram's scores to Scream 1996, Scream 2, 1997, and Mimic. 1997. So not only replace it with score from another horror movie, they replace it with scores from three other horror movies. So the music playing in the background as Norma is leaving in her car is from uh, Bernard Herrmann's score on Psycho from 1960. So we're now up to four different movie scores in this movie. And then the producers wanted a darker, more scream-like score, while Ottman's score wasn't strong enough to fit the bill. So some of what remained of Ottman's score was heavily edited and often was used for scenes for which they were not originally intended. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So, Music for Scream 1996 was added to the chase scenes later on during post-production, and composer John Ottman expressed some displeasure about this action uh, in an interview featured on the Halloween 25 Years of uh, Terror DVD released in 2006. And some, some displeasure is right. He 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 was basically a calm pissed in that interview. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and let's be let's be honest. He had every right to be pissed. It's really a weird weird thing to do. I mean, you've hired a man to write a score, and then you reject most of his work, chop it up, the rest, and produce a hodgepodge of what are we now five different scores for one movie. I mean, given that the production team could have found a plan if it slapped him in the face, I guess this makes perfect sense. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the less said about the score, the better, because uh, it works to a certain extent, but holy shnikes. You know, so over to you, Mike. Let's dive into the movie itself. Oh, that that sounds like a great idea, Nan, but I have to say that once again, a Halloween movie screws the guy that makes the score. And you're right, there is no reason to hire a guy to make a score and then do something entirely different. It's it's a waste of time, money, and resources. But you mentioned using some music from the movie Psycho. Well, we've talked a bit about the screen references in the film, but did you notice there are a crap ton of references to 1960s Psycho, uh, considered by many to be the roots of the slasher genre? Yes. Uh, not the least of these many references is the appearance of Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Lee, in the film, who plays the role of Norma in H2O. And Norma happens to be Norma ba Norman Bates' mother's name. Norma tells mm. Carrie or Lori uh, that the girl's shower is clogged again. <laughs> this is a very on-the-nose reference to Janet Lee's famous shower scene death in Psycho. Uh, they leaned pretty heavy into the Psycho scene references with her, uh, but they are subtle and can be overlooked. 
reek, reek, reek. <laughs> For instance, uh, during the scene where Norma is leaving after giving Laura some maternal advice, which I just loved, um, we see her standing in front of her car. Well, that car is the exact same model of car, a 1957 Ford sedan from Psycho, specifically the car Marion bought off the lot. Even the license plate is a clue, NFB418, are, are Norman Francis Bates' initials. All of that in a short... <laughs> All of that in that short little scene. I, I, I think you can see why why I said they were subtle references. Uh, during one of the scenes at school, Charlie tells John, 20 years from now, you're still going to be living with her. Probably running some weird motel out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> which basically just said John was Norman Bates. <laughs> nice. There's, nice. Another, there's, <laughs> there's another one, I think. Uh, that has to be a psycho reference, and, and that is why this—that is when the security guard Ronnie calls Lori psycho. Also, as a quick note, Janet Lee's inclusion in H2O may be a nod to the original Halloween, which drew a lot of inspiration from Psycho, as did Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, but I believe there were other references and nods in the film. What's their name? Uh, yes, sir, there were. Uh, Halloween continues to bring receipts for those who have horror movie knowledge, and I'm here for it. Evil trivia pie pieces for all, and let's get to it. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, Lori tells Norma that everyone is entitled to one good scare, echoing Sheriff Brackett, uh, Charles Cyphers from the first Halloween in 1978. Also, as in the 78 film, the first time Michael attempts to stab Lori, he slashes down her upper left arm, somewhere between the tricep and his bicep. And for everyone that noticed that, do you think that was a coincidence? Uh, let us know in the comments down below, because I don't think it was a coincidence. And judging by uh, the mask over there, he doesn't think <laughs> it's a coincidence either. So uh, director Stephen Miner also threw out some references for us. When Jimmy's first shown, he's wearing a hockey mask, a reference to Jason Voorhees or Macabre Michael Nunley, a premonition of, of Macabre Michael Nunley to come. Absolutely. You know, they knew you would show up later. So so anyway, you decide, was it Jason or Macabre Michael, or is Macabre Michael Nunley secretly Jason Voorhees in disguise? I don't know. But uh, director Stephen Miner also directed Friday the 13th Part 2 from 1981 and Friday the 13th Part 3 from 1982. In the latter movie, Jason acquires his trademark hockey mask from one of his victims. So while Jason Voorhees seems the obvious answer, I think if you look closely, Miner was using the ruinous powers to prophesy the rise of Macabre Mike Nunley. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Thank baby. you. Thank you. So uh, let's go. Let's keep going. Laurie Strode's boyfriend, Will Brennan, says that he isn't going on the trip to Yosemite because guidance counselors aren't usually a big hit in the wilderness. A clear reference <laughs> to Friday the 13th. So Brennan managed to avoid Jason on his West Coast swing and met Michael instead. Kudos <laughs> to you, Will. Good job. Uh, Michael Myers leaving his home in Haddonfield to find and kill Laurie is reminiscent of Jason Voorhees leaving Crystal Lake to finally kill Alice in Friday the 13th Part 2. Well, uh, minus the carrying of Pamela Voorhees' head to stuff in the refrigerator, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. So, gotta leave some headroom for the unusually tall Jason. All right, that was a bad joke, but feel free to laugh out there. Uh, so, and finally, a statue of Butterball. The Cenobite from Hellraiser can be seen on Jimmy's porch when the nurse knocks on his door. I mean, you just can't make this shit up. So, and with that, 
I'm going to choke back some vomit after seeing Butterball again and send it back to you, Mike. So. <laughs> oh, man, the references and nods are pretty thick. I have to agree. Uh, so, yes, let's move on to the movie. Um, did you notice that when Jimmy uh, went into Marion's house, it was daytime? Uh, and, and when he walked out, it was nighttime? I have to imagine that was a big old goof on the part of the editor because story-wise, that doesn't make any sense. Why? Jimmy says the cops will be there at Marion's house in five minutes. First of all, cops will never tell you they'll be there in five <laughs> minutes. That's just bullshit. Um, but it's nighttime before we see them. Now, don't get me wrong. Cops take that long to get there. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, we, there was there was way more than five minutes between when Jimmy talked to the police and when Jimmy came out of Marion's house at night. Enough that those cold beers and Jimmy pants uh, were probably not cold anymore. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but it's hard to unsee once you notice it. My, my guess is time appeared to pass more than it actually happened there. Yeah, uh, I blame it on the Cinnabite. Um, I always do that, <laughs> but when I unexpectedly lose time, it's either that or the aliens. It's one of the two, so... All right, Dwayne Barry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> Michael shows much more developed intellect in H2O. I mean, he knew to go to Marion Whittington's house to get the records on Laurie Strode, and he systematically tracked down Laurie at Hillcrest. He is clearly on an investigation. Michael also knew how to drive to Northern California from Illinois, which almost has to mean he used a map. He parks the car down at the bottom of the driveway before the gate and cuts the phone lines before going into the school, which totally reminds me of what Tex Watson did before he, Susan Atkins, Patricia Quenwinkle, and Linda Kasabian entered the Tate grounds in 1969. Uh, but back to my point, Michael has never cut the phone lines or put any thought into such matters in the past. But I kind of like that Michael is acting like a proper serial killer in this one. Yeah, you know, I, I got a nod and give you a salute and give you credit for your callbacks to the Manson family murders on this one. It's the second time you mentioned it. And I think that's a really interesting take and not one I would have tied in if you hadn't mentioned it. So, I mean, here I was thinking it was just the late nineties at this point, And Michael needs to figure out phone wires just in time for cell phones to get popular use and in comes the ruinous powers who summoned macabre Mike Dunley. And he points out to me that this whole thing is about uh, the Tate murders and everything. So kudos <laughs> to you, man, for bringing that in. Cool. Hey, thank you. I'll, I'll take that. Uh, as for Michael figuring out that he should cut the phone lines, it would seem that Murphy's Law applies to serial killers, too. <laughs> so Absolutely. I, I, I just have to say something about Ronnie the security guard. Um, if I was Ronnie, there is no way in hell I would ever let any of the kids out, especially after the headmistress flat out told me I would lose my job if I did. I mean... It's not just him anymore. Not, not only does he need uh, his job to pay the bills while his writing career is taking off, but he has a wife to consider, too. I, I honestly can't wrap my head around why he would do that. Do, do you have any theories on that one, Nim? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious, obvious answer here is that the sexual oppression that Ronnie is carrying has shifted all the blood from one head to the other, if you know what I mean. I mean... The dude is sitting there writing all of this kinky stuff and talking with his girlfriend or his wife about it constantly. I mean, honestly, I'm amazed the dude just didn't bail and call in sick, you know, and just go pay a visit to the missus. So back to you while I look for some of that fanfic online because, oh, did I say that out loud? Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, back to you while I listen to the comments from everybody in the, in the you know, the comment section. So, yeah, take it away, Mike. Where was that fanfic now? Oh. 
I'm still on camera. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but seriously, I, I, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm just gonna leave that one right there. I'm, I'm not touching that one. Um, I'd like to switch over to a deeper element of the film. Um, you know, you mentioned the cut scene about one of uh, Carrie Tate's or Laurie Strode's students named Sarah doing a report on the Halloween murders. Uh, well, I think the classroom scene we saw in the film replaced that scene with a callback to the original 78 film. Check this out. In the first Halloween movie, Laurie sees Michael Myers out the window of her classroom and then answers the question from her teacher about fate that is obviously a metaphor for Michael Myers. When she looks out at the window again, Michael is gone. As a play on that scene in H2O, we see that Laurie is the teacher this time, and she teaches a class on Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein. And, and it is her student, Molly, that answers her question by talking about the fate of Dr. Frankenstein as well as the book. But like Laurie, Molly sees Michael Myers out the window of her classroom, and then when she looks back after answering the question, he's gone. What's interesting in this particular case is that Molly seems to be speaking right to Lori about her experience with Michael and how she should have acted. Molly is completely unaware of this, but you can tell by the look on Lori's face that is exactly how she feels about what Molly is saying. Uh, listen to what she said. I think that Victor should have confronted the monster sooner. He's completely responsible for Elizabeth's deaths. He was so paralyzed by fear that he never did anything. It took death for the guy to get a clue. Uh, I do find it interesting that in the comics, Laurie Strode blames herself for what happened to her friends in, on Halloween in 1978. So assuming that they were building on that, Laurie had been carrying the weight of what Molly had just said and her guilt for 20 years. What, what do you think of that, Nim? Yeah, um, it just doesn't ring that true to me, I, I have to say. I mean, what was she supposed to do, especially as a teenage kid? I mean, we've established that Michael Myers is one tough mofo to kill, and yet has a decided talent in killing people rather gruesomely. I mean, I think your best bet if you're a kid is get the hell out of Dodge. My opinion, anyway. I mean, hell, look at how effective the four million bullets Loomis and the police pumped into him <laughs> over the years were. I mean, the dude is still walking around just fine. So when Molly goes on to say that uh, Victor finally confronts the monster because he had reached a point in his life where he had nothing left to lose, I mean... The monster saw to that by killing off everybody that he loved. It was about redemption. It was his fate. I think she hit the nail on the head. When 20 years later, Michael shows up again, uh, you finally reach a point where Lori has zero fucks to give. I mean, let's just call it like I see it. So with this in mind, Lori proceeds to lose it. She draws down on the police, steals a corpse in an ambulance, then chops the head inadvertently of an innocent man right the hell off before ending up in an insane asylum. I mean, after 20 years of living in fear and seeing her loved ones murdered, she had nothing more to lose at that point and snaps. It was time to face her fears and end the nightmare. And at least she got those 20 years before she decided to just say, fuck it, and then go on an epic rant. So that's the way I see it. What do you think? Well, I like that. I like that story arc. I, I think I saw it a bit differently. Um, there are more things to consider when, when children are involved, and that is absolutely a valid reason to not do what I'm about to suggest here. Uh, but that said, I'm the type of guy, I, I've actually gone places where I knew I was going to get my ass kicked, and, and even by multiple people, and I went there just to get it over with. 
Uh, I hate looking over my shoulder in fear. I, I refuse to live like that. Uh, well, I would die. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Especially being a fat old fart like I am now. <laughs> but I would still stand and fight Jason, Michael, or Freddy. Uh, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die with my boots on. And an evil trivia pie piece, if you know where I got that from, man. Um, would that be Iron Maiden's Die With Your Boots On from the Peace of Mind album in 1983? 83. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You got that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Very nice. And you even knew the release date. So a point of inspiration as well. Nice. <laughs> uh, so here, so but let's get back to what I was saying. Um, I, I think that she would have been better off facing her fears and embracing her fate if that was what was required. There is no guarantee that it would have worked, but it also might have saved her friends' lives and allowed her son to live a normal life. Plus, I think living in fear for 20 years is no life at all. I mean, consider the effect that her life of fear had on John, or worse, me, taught him about oh, how to deal with fear. Um, however, that rant aside, I, I can still understand why Lori might have chosen the path she did. Uh, what do you think, man? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like most things. It's, you know, six of one, half does the other. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Hmm. Yeah, the old catch 22 sounds about right. <laughs> but but as a side note, before we move on, I, I think the scene with the Dr. Frankenstein analogy was likely written by Kevin Williamson. I say this because when Jamie Lee Curtis was explaining how she wanted the story to go, she said that she wanted Lori's life to be an absolute shambles at the start of the film. In other words, she was already at the point where Dr. Frankenstein ended up. She had nothing left to lose. But executive producer Kevin Williamson convinced her that uh, Lori should have more to lose when the film starts out. Yeah, I mean, I think I got to agree with that. I'd argue that being alive, one, and having a kid, two, left her with a lot to lose at the beginning of the film. I mean, honestly, if I were to write Lori Strode in that moment, I'd think that, though, that she would be willing to destroy her life in order to ensure that her kid never has to deal with Michael again. It seems like a motherly thing to do and definitely the kind of thing Lori would do for her kid, for John. I I think I think Lori agrees with that. <laughs> she was totally overprotective of John, suffocatingly so, I might add. Uh, I'm positive it was her idea to find a gated school with a security <laughs> guard for John to go to. And it's no accident that she happened to end up as the headmistress of that school. <laughs> she was watching John like a hawk. And I, I think it was Absolutely. her son's life. I think it was her son's life being in danger that, that finally allowed Lori to get a clue in Molly's words about Dr. Frankenstein. Agreed. Agreed. Awesome. So I'd like to switch gears here a little bit and talk about the comics. Um, I don't know if you know this, uh, but Halloween comics are not easy to come by. Uh, the ones that have been made are out of print and are not available on digital. That means that the ones that are being sold are at a premium price. But I was able to find some info about what took place in the comics that pertain to Halloween H2O. Uh, the ones we're going to talk about are the 2008 miniseries Halloween, the first death of Laurie Strode from Devil's Due Publishing. Uh, the, these few comics in, fill in some gaps here and there and point out the things that have changed in the Halloween H2O timeline. Uh, this series follows the events of Halloween 2 before Laurie Strode fakes her death and fills in a little backstory. 
In the comics, Laurie Strode was actually born Cynthia Myers on February 22nd, 1961. She is the mm. she was the youngest of three children of Donald and Edith, Edith Myers. Uh, being born in 1961 means that Cynthia was only two years old when her six-year-old uh, brother Michael killed Judith Myers. Uh, the comics also add a bit of backstory to that night via a story from 1963 in Judith Myers' diary. Apparently, Judith and her boyfriend, Daniel, the, the, the fastest player in the West, <laughs> uh, took Michael to a field out in Langdon, Illinois, which, which actually explains how Michael knew how to get there in H2O. Uh, when they got there, they told Michael to go play and started having sex in the field. Mid-coital, Judith looks up to see Michael covered in the blood of a rabbit he just killed, just staring at the two of them. <laughs> but Judith never said anything to her parents. Uh, Michael was finally sent off to Smith Grove Sanitarium after he killed Judith, but you have to assume she wished he had said something while Michael was stabbing her. I'm surprised that I knew it, you sick bastard, didn't come out of her mouth. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The old it to Michael moment. Yeah, definitely. Or the holy crap, where'd you get that knife? But yeah, I digress. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, but but at some point when, when Lori was very young, um, Edith took her to visit Michael at Smithsgrove Sanitarium and warned her never to speak to this to her father. Lori slipped and mentioned Michael's name, and Donald whipped her with the belt until she was afraid to even think about Michael, and she hmm. didn't anymore after that. And this actually explains why she had no idea who Michael was in the first film. It was not until Halloween 2 that they revealed that Lori was Michael's sister. Uh, but back to Cynthia Myers, a.k.a. Lori Strode. Uh, when Cynthia was five years old, her parents were killed in the car accident, which sounds a lot like what happened to Jamie Lloyd, no? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in order to protect Cynthia's identity, her death was faked, and it was said that she died in the same car accident with her parents. What really happened was that Lori went into foster care and was soon adopted by the Strode family, who had her name legally changed to Lori Strode, which is a little odd. I, I, I haven't heard of a lot having a lot in foster care care but whatever uh the governor of illinois kept the her record sealed so that no one would ever further connect Lori strode with her psychotic older sibling Lori eventually forgot about her birth family and here is where you insert the first film all right that is a whole lot to digest right there well so let's sum up the series and let's hit a few bullet points here for everybody out there for myself because we're starting to, to go all over the place i want to sum it up for everybody uh, and it would take way too long to go through the whole story, but I think we could touch on a few things. Bullet point number one. In the comics, Halloween 2 is part of the canon, although some things were changed. Haddonfield Memorial Hospital did blow up, and Lori even saw Michael's burning body. However, in the substitute search, his body was never found. Everyone got that? Cool. Number two. Because of this, both Loomis and Lori knew that Michael would definitely be returning for her. Uh, John's line, you said yourself, you saw him burning, is a direct reference to those comics. So bring that into your whole concept of what is canon. Number three, the stress of knowing Michael could come at any Halloween makes Lori rebellious, and she'd eventually turn to drugs in the comics. This drug use was mostly due to the influence of her friend Sally. Another point. Four. We find out that the paramedic, Jimmy Lloyd, from Halloween 2, received a head injury in 1978. We also learn that he and Lloyd were having a fling. So, yeah, there's some pleasant storytelling for you in the comics. And I have to say, real quick, I'm going to digress a moment. 
I collect comics and I'd never heard of those comics. So I got to give a huge salute to Mike who knew all those facts about the comics. That is awesome. So over to you, man. Take it away. Hey, you know, it's not it's not actually surprising that you hadn't heard of those. They're they're really obscure. Like I said, they're out of print. It's almost impossible to get your hands on one. So, I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. I, I personally tried to collect them and I can't. So, wow. <laughs> uh, right. well, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, we're going to have to go rob somebody or something. We're going to go take it on the road and go find a place. So that's right. That's right. Devil's <laughs> do publishing. We're coming for you. Exactly. <laughs> I I wonder if Lori's rebellious partying days uh, is not the scenario that Lori found her chain smoking abusive methadone addict husband in. Uh, that was John's father in H2O. John makes a joke at his mother's expense in the movie saying, I wonder who would attract someone like that. <laughs> Lori doesn't deny it. She just says, ouch. <laughs> Let's not forget that she is an alcoholic. That seems to be a nod to her partying days in the comics too. Some folks only recover, uh, only like re recover from illegal drugs. They, 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 they draw a line there. As long as it's legal, it's okay. And maybe alcohol was a good legal substitute for her. I don't know. Uh, but I believe there was a particular story in the comics that you wanted to bring up. Wasn't there, Nim? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you turned me on to the whole comics thing, I did a little research and there was one very interesting little story in there that I think is worth pointing out. Um, okay. In the story, Laurie and her friend Sally walk by the house of a, an aging, uh, lecherous pervert. I guess that's the best way to describe him by the name of Mr. Riddle. And the girls are made uncomfortable by Mr. Riddle's pervy gaze. But Laurie says that they should just move on. And later that night at Laurie's house, uh, Laurie looks out the window and to see Michael Myers standing near the clotheslines. And she screams, and Sally comes to the window. When they take a second look, they see the body of old Mr. Riddle sitting dead in a chair in the backyard. And Lori runs out of the house screaming straight into the arms of Dr. Loomis. And there are two things that I can infer from that. Number one, Michael was watching Sally and Lori while they were walking by Mr. Riddle's house. Uh, that's a little creepy, but Mr. Riddle's a little creepy, so we can <laughs> excuse that. Uh, two... Michael's protective of Lori to some extent in that he wants to be the one that kills her. Ah, oh, brotherly love. So, um, <laughs> yeah, another thing worth noting is that Loomis explains that he can find no true motivation behind Michael's homicidal actions besides recreating the murder of his sister, Judith Myers, over and over again. So what do you think about that, Mike? That... Hmm. That is interesting because it explains where Daniel Ferrens got the idea for his Halloween Bible for the curse of Michael Myers. When you combine that with Michael watching Judith and Daniel uh, in the field, you know, with the rabid blood all over him, uh, Ferrens, Michael's sexually deviant story actually starts to make a little bit more sense. I'm, I'm not going to go as far as saying that Michael is having sex, uh, but I've heard that murder and sexual release can be tied together and partic in particularly in six sick minds like Ted Bundy. Uh, but if I'm going to go there with Michael, I have to believe that it is the killing itself that gives him that release and not raping as well like Bundy. Uh, but where, where are you at with that, Nam? Uh, do, does the new information with from Judith's diary change anything? Yeah, I'm going to say I still think it's a hard sell for me. I mean, I want to agree with you, Mike, but there's one other big moment in the comics that sets up what we see in the film, and that is Michael coming back to kill her again at a party. 
Of course, this time he was in an Emmett Kelly clown costume and a nice callback there to the uh, Rob Zombie films. There's a lot of stuff in the comics of the Rob Zombie films I, I yeah. found out. And uh, she sneaks up on her from behind and grabs a butcher knife while he's uh, doing it. So Lori looks up just as Michael raises his knife. Uh, for a tense moment, they look at one another, sharing that brother-sisterly love. And Lori, realizing in horror that despite the, uh, the new costume, this was Michael Myers. And she runs just as Michael stabs downward at her. As Lori runs, she starts to remember her life as Cynthia Myers. Uh, this is starting to get a little strange. And Michael tries to run her over with the car. Once again, brotherly love. So later that night, on October 31st, 1979, with the help and advice of Dr. Loomis and Marion Chambers, Lori Strode fakes her own death to get Michael off her trail, leaving only Loomis and Marion knowing the truth. But alas, Loomis dies of a heart attack before 1998. There is actually an end credit in the film in memory of Donald Pleasance in the move in the movie. But his surname is misspelled, which seems a very Halloween producer production thing to do to poor Donald Pleasance. May he rest in peace. That that is somehow both a compliment and a slap in the face yeah. <laughs> to be mentioned at the end and then not have them spell your name right. That <laughs> sounds exactly right. Exactly right. So. <laughs> but perhaps Lori was not the only one to change her name and go into hiding. I, I can't help but notice that Marion Chambers no longer lives in Haddonfield in H2O and her last name is now Whittington. Uh, my guess is that Loomis probably would have gone into hiding, too. That also explains why Lori, even after 20 years, was still worried about Halloween and Michael Myers. Uh, her death was faked not once but twice to get away from him, and he still tracked her down. H2O turned stalker slashing up to 11. <laughs> what do you think, Nim? All right. Sit back and just give me a moment and think about what I'm going to say. I'm going to put this all in context with Michael's other actions that we've remarked on earlier. I'm going to go all the way back to the curse of thorns idea. Is it possible? Is it possible that Michael got an upgrade somehow? Dare I suggest that Dr. Lewis off camera as the new leader of the thorn cult, as we saw in the curse of Michael Myers upgraded Michael, he upgraded Michael into serial killer 2.0. <laughs> Yes, yes. As Freddie said to the Fresh Prince, I'm your DJ now, Michael. So I am all about there. But I have lost it. I've gone back to Fresh Prince from the 80s. So back over to you, Macabre Michael Dunley. <laughs> that is quite all right. And maybe you're right. Maybe they injected Michael with evil nanites, Michael X style. <laughs> nice. Sorry, yeah, I had nice. to make the Jason X <laughs> reference there. You mentioned the upgrade. <laughs> But, but seriously, though, I, I like to talk about one of the scenes in the movie, uh, the scene where Laurie is hiding beneath tables in the dining hall and Michael starts flipping the tables over was originally going to be placed in Halloween four, where Michael chases Jamie Lloyd through the elementary school. It was written that she would hide under the desk and Michael was going to flip the desks over. Uh, this was dropped due to time constraints. However, Mustafa Akkad remembered it and filmed it as part of H2O. I thought that was cool and it turned out to be a pretty cool scene. I think it would have been better with Jamie Lloyd, uh, but that is neither here nor there. Uh, I believe you had something you wanted to mention before we start counting the corpses. Am I right, Nim? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to say, though, that I love the mention about the tables. And I think you're right. I think jo Jamie Lloyd would have been great in that scene. 
But uh, I have to say that when you listen to the movie commentary for this movie, Jamie Lee Curtis, I, I still can't get over this. Jamie Lee Curtis yells at Laurie Strode on screen at one point, at one point, don't drop the freaking knife as Laurie drops the knife. I mean, I love that. That's freaking hilarious. I mean, and then Jamie says, after Laurie drops the knife, Jamie Lee Curtis says, oh, I could punch her in the nose right now. Uh, <laughs> Curtis would also add that they made her drop the knife in the first movie, and she isn't sure why she didn't learn from her mistakes. I got to say, I agree with her, but if horror movie tropes weren't a thing, we wouldn't get movies like Scream or Scary Movies, so there's that as well. But I, I just find that whole thing hilarious that Jamie Lee Curtis is yelling at her own character on screen. So kudos to Jamie Lee again. She's just friggin' awesome. She is the queen of Scream, as Randy said. So with that... I think we've reached that special part of the show that makes little boys' eyes sparkle and maidens to blush. It's time to count the corpses. Kill it, Mikey. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I gotta, I gotta add uh, one more, one thing there, just real quick. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis has said, you know, she goes to a lot of conventions and stuff, right? And I guess one of the most common questions she gets asked, like. Uh, at least 90% of the questions involve this one. Why did you drop the knife? Why did you put it down? <laughs> so, I mean, I can see what she was saying. I could totally punch her in the nose right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we are finally about to count some corpses and talk about some kills. I love this part. I know my I know my friend Nem here is a sick bastard too. So let's get into this. Kill, 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 kill. Go, 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 go. Sorry. Oh man, I got overexcited. <laughs> cross franchises there that for a moment. Uh please continue. We don't want to cross the stream. So keep going. <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I like it. And, and actually, if we could get away with a soundbite from Friday the 13th film like that, I would totally use it for this <laughs> section. <laughs> but, but let's count the corpses. Um, The very first kill is Jimmy Howell. As off-camera deaths go, Jimmy Howell getting that ice skate buried in his face was pretty fucking awesome. I, I don't care how sharp Jimmy's skates were. It took some brutal force to sink that blade into his skull and in, in that deep in one swing. You notice there weren't extra chop marks. It wasn't like, eh, eh. He just went <laughs> right into his fucking face. <laughs> that is my favorite kill. <laughs> I have to say, you and I are on the same wavelength, compadre, but for different reasons. When that kid went in there all cocky, I was yelling at the kid, don't you know you're in a Halloween movie, dumbass? And then he bought it. I mean, he should have listened to Nim. And uh, I have to say, he fucked around and found out. So, you know, there it is. <laughs> That that he did. I, I guess the lesson to learn here is not to fucking around and find out when ice skates are involved. <laughs> the second death was a lot of nothing, really. We, we barely even see that Tony was stabbed in the back with a kitchen knife. It, it was more of a setup for the Marion kill, if you ask me. But what did you think about that death, Nim? Uh, honestly, I think Tony felt bad for not letting his dumbass friend know they were in a horror movie and so offered <laughs> his back to Michael. You know, points for solidarity, but mucho negative points for not making it more more difficult for the salt to slash. So, you know, there it is. Yeah, baby, yeah, baby I love it. The salt and the slash, that's some cool shit. <laughs> okay, uh, Nim, while we're on the subject, we're in a horror movie, just uh -oh. so you know. <laughs> I'll be right back. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
shit. Uh, but speaking <laughs> of I'll Be Right Back, let's move on to the Casey Becker kill on Halloween H2O. <laughs> but by that, I mean that Marion was a character that you didn't expect to see to die. I mean, she was a legacy character. But speaking of Marion, of the first three kills, her death is up there. Uh, her death was better because we actually got to see her uh, get killed instead of just the aftermath. Also, I... I I have to I have seen a few throat slittings in at Halloween and and I think this one is probably one of the bloodier ones. Is it is it slittings or slicings or slits like twits or twitters or tweets? I don't know. Either way, yeah, she got the business in the knife because Mike was feeling disrespected by the two uh, snot-nosed punks she sent in as sacrificed lamb. So good on you, Michael. Yeah, little beauty, you took uh, care of that little ripper. So. Amen. <laughs> okay, listeners, uh, make sure to take this one home with you. <laughs> Being a snot-nosed punk equals death by a supernatural <laughs> serial killer. <laughs> it's harsh, I know. <laughs> I've tried to talk some sense into Michael about it, but he won't even talk to me about it. <laughs> death number four, I have to speculate about, and, and that is Charlie Devereaux. Uh, before Charlie goes up in the dumbwaiter, he says, I'll be right back. <laughs> and as explained in screen by Randy, one of our favorite characters around here, uh, this is a cardinal horror movie sin. It is no coincidence. It was added by screenwriter and script doctor Kevin Williamson. Uh, but once Charlie gets up to the next level, he pulls a rather large corkscrew out of the largest garbage disposal I have ever seen in my life and turns around to find Michael with that ridiculous CGI enhanced mask. Uh, the next time we see Charlie, he is on the dumb waiter with his throat slit because it's, but it, it's not just cut. It looks, it looks as if it was partially cut and partially torn. Michael is holding a big old knife in the next scene. And I don't think he used that. So I have to assume that Michael ripped his throat open with the corkscrew. Uh, what do, you, what do you think about that, man? Knife or corkscrew? All right. I'm going to go off on a on a weird rant. I'm going to I'm going to be like you know, I'm conspiracy theory time. Do 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 do. But listen okay. to me. This kill was done by Lori Strode. Hear me out now. Hear me out. Lori did it. Lori has some inkling, some sixth sense, some crazy sixth sense that Michael was around. She didn't like Charlie's bad influence on her son, John, and she saw her chance and she effed that dude. She often before bribing the production team to cut the film so it looked like Michael did it. That friggin' sneaky woman, man. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And then, and then at the end of the film, she tries to decapitate Michael later to cover up her crime. How do you like them apples? It's explained. But if we're going to go the boring route, I'll go with Michael with the course crew and the dumbwaiter for the clue ending. But I still like my whole Laurie Strode theory. Damn. <laughs> that is a burly way to go. I mean... Cutting someone's throat with a corkscrew is not easy, and it's time-consuming to tear flesh with. Uh, I, I remember this time when... Never mind. Yeah, uh, don't, don't talk about time, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going to talk about that time. Uh, the next time, the next to die is Sarah Wainthrope, uh, Charlie Devereaux's girlfriend. She got hurt pretty bad before Michael actually killed her. He stabbed her pretty deep in the thigh and then dropped the dumbwaiter on her calf muscle. I mean, it busted her shit open. It was burly. God damn, that looked like it hurt. Then Michael steps on her neck and brutally stabs her four times in the chest, or at least four times. He, he could have done it a few times off, of ca off camera as well. But logistically, this kill is off. 
it, it would be difficult to step on someone's neck and then stand halfway up to bring down the knife again four times uh, like, like he did. It, I mean, it could be done, but it would have been very awkward. And I think the killer would have more likely gotten down and put his knee on her neck and stabbed her while he was on the floor. Um, hmm. But that would have, I mean, that would have at least been more comfortable. But you're a writer too, uh, Nama. How are you envisioning that in your mind? Well, do you want serious Nim? Or do you want smart ass Nim? <laughs> so, uh, I want both. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, serious Nim first, then. Uh, serious Nim says that he would kill her in exactly the way you described, or more simply, he would straddle her and bring the knife down into her face or throat. So, you know, and, and the face and throat is good. Yeah. So we could, that that's the that's serious Nim. Smart ass Nim, on the other hand, says, that when he was doing this whole thing with the knife while standing up, he was practicing his yoga flexibility exercise and gained extra leverage by pulling the giraffe stretch, you know, that awesome <laughs> giraffe stretch pose as he stabbed her over and over again. And he was working on, you know, increasing his chakras. So everyone wins as countless course podcast viewers get both serious and smart Nim and Michael Mirrors increased his chakra just in time to have his head cut off to cover up the death that Laurie Stroh did. Did I say that? Lori's going to come for me. Anyway, the things I do for y'all, back to you, Mike. So, <laughs> Well, we appreciate your sacrifice, my friend. <laughs> You're most welcome. You're most welcome. The sixth death in Halloween H2O was Lori's boyfriend and Hillcrest guidance counselor, Will Brennan. Mm. His death was actually pretty cool, particularly because Michael has killed Will by stabbing him in the back with a butcher knife and lifting him up off the ground. That is very similar to how Michael Myers killed Nurse Jill in Halloween 2 from 1981. Besides the kill, Jamie personally watched both murders, which gives the murders even more common ground. The difference being that with Nurse Jill in Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, Michael Myers was using a scalpel. I talked about this with James back in episode three, but practically speaking, lifting someone off the ground with a scalpel would be impossible. Either the scalpel would cut through the flesh and out the back, uh, or the killer's wrist would go forward and she would slip off the front. I like that Michael used a big old knife to lift up Will. That long, wide blade with the dull side that the knife, it, it, it could really get a good grip in Will's torso. Plus, you're getting, real, with that you're getting nice... real excited, Mike. Calm down a little bit. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, plus, with, with that nice, solid handle, it would be easier to lift him up, I think. You know, you get, get a really good, solid grip on that. It would require some Michael Myers level strength, but it was way more satisfying than Nurse Jill. Death. All right. I'm trying to calm myself down as well because I have to say, <laughs> as far as pure kills go, this one is my favorite in the movie right here. This yeah. is absolutely brutal. I mean, it is brutal with a capital B for brutal. <laughs> I mean, Will's death has some sort of weird karmic justice to it as he nearly kills Ronnie Jones just moments earlier. Harsh. But fate doesn't fuck around, I guess I'm sad to say, especially if you're a snot-nosed punk or you're somebody who almost killed somebody by accident. So I also think it's interesting, though, uh, when I was saying that, I mean, I'm joking around, but I think it's interesting that Lori finally bites the big one in the next movie after she killed an innocent man. So I guess the, the, the lesson to be learned here is you're only allowed to kill the innocent if you really mean it, a la Michael Myers. So... Take that to heart, folks. If you're going to kill, kill because you mean it, because it's from the heart. So. 
I find you guilty of first degree murder. Not because you killed a man, but because you just didn't feel like you really meant it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's karmic justice for you right there. So. <laughs> oh, that's good shit. Uh, the last death, if you ask me, was Michael Myers himself. Uh, Michael's head being chopped off by Lori with an axe was a nice ending. In fact, I like to pretend that Halloween Resurrection never happened and that Lori actually killed Michael. But technically speaking, and according to Resurrection, Michael switched clothes with the paramedic and it was actually the paramedic that was murdered by Lori. But I say screw all of that. What are your thoughts on this, Nem? Well, I have to say that if I look at just, just the first few minutes of Resurrection... I'm okay with it because I see it as life flipping Lori, the big old bird, just as Michael kills her. You know, <laughs> that seems to fit into what's going on with Lori Strode. However, and that's seriously messed up. And, you know, I like things that are seriously messed up. And if you didn't like messed up out there, you wouldn't want to be watching these movies or this podcast. Let's be honest with ourselves. But I have to say the rest of that movie resurrection is just too horrific for anyone though. I mean, even for horror movie fans. So how's that answer? <laughs> we, we we are 100% agreed on that. That That is certainly a fucked up way to end Lori's story. And watching Resurrection is a horror I wouldn't wish on my enemies. Well, assuming I had any enemies. But <laughs> let, let's get into our final thoughts on the film. All in all, I liked Halloween H2O. Is it my favorite? No. Uh, but it's one that I like a lot. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, it is the first Halloween movie that I ever watched. So I do have that whole nostalgia goggles thing going there. Um, Halloween H2O felt more like a psychological horror with the more intelligent and tactical Michael Myers. But it did have some slashing in it. There, there were not a lot of deaths in the film, and there was only really a couple of good ones, in my opinion. So I'm giving it a 2.5 out of 5 for the kills. Uh, the movie itself was a different way to go, but after Halloween 6, <laughs> I was ready for something different. Um, I, I would give H2O a solid 3.5 out of 5 skulls, but I must admit that some of that score is after reading what happened in the comics to fill in the gaps. Uh, but how about you, Nim? What, what are your final thoughts on the movie, and how would you rate Halloween H2O's kills and, and as a movie? Yeah, I mean, so like I said, I've only watched this movie twice now, but I really enjoyed several aspects of this film, to be perfectly honest with you. I think this film had more of a suspense and, and cerebral vibe to it than other installments, and I appreciated that, but it didn't have the same feel of Halloween movies, if that makes sense. Uh, so that leaves me with a dilemma. Do I judge it on its own as its own movie, or do I judge it as part of the series? If I judge it on its own, I think I give this movie a four out of five skulls. If I had never seen any other movies and this was a standalone, um, but maybe even 4.25, you know, I think that's high, but I could go that high if they were like bribing me with that, that knife that they killed, you know, Will Brennan with or something like that. So, <laughs> but if I judge this as part of the series, uh, I got to say it tumbles all the way down to three out of five skulls. Easy. So um, ultimately, I think I have to judge it as part of the series. And so it's, it's a three out of five skulls for me. As far as the kills, the kills were hit or miss. And so I'll go middle of the road with you, Mike, and give it a 2.5 for kills. Um, I'll, ultimately, I'll say that this movie is definitely rewatchable and it's enjoyable. So as far as movies goes, this is a win in my book, even if it's not the greatest movie in the series. How's that? That That's I, I I can deal with that. That that's a that that's totally a fair assessment. I mean, slightly different scores, uh, but I think we're close to this uh, uh, to being on the same page with that film. 
Uh, but that about wraps up our discussion on Halloween H2O, and it also closes out our coverage of the Halloween movies. Uh, we do like a variety of horror films, so we're going to do a couple a couple or a few paranormal movies, uh, or maybe even a little demon movies, uh, before we get into our next slasher franchise. Uh, yeah. Thank you all for listening and hanging out with us. Um, I, I've had a great time hanging out with my friend Nam and talking about H2O. I hope you have too, and we'll see you later this month with 13 Ghosts from 2001. Nice, nice.